This recording has been prepared by Aravis Capital Limited, hereafter referred to as Aravis, for entertainment and information purposes only, and is intended solely for professional investors and not retail clients. The information, statements, comments, views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not constitute and should not be construed as investment advice, an offer to buy or sell any securities, or an endorsement to make or consider any investment or course of action. You should consult a professional before making any investment decisions. Past performance is not a reliable guide to future performance. Investments can go down as well as up. Aravis does not express any opinion as to the present or future value or price of any instruments referred to in this recording, and the information provided is believed to be valid and accurate on the date it is first published. Aravis does not accept any liability for any loss arising from the use of the information. Any expressions of opinions reflect the view of the speakers and are not necessarily those of Aravis, and are subject to change without notice. This recording is the property of Aravis and is not to be reproduced in whole or in part without prior written consent. Hello and welcome to episode three of Aravis Presents, a podcast series where we aim to speak to figures from within the asset management world about markets, what moves them and where they might be headed. My name is Hugo Rogers, an associate director at Aravis Capital, and today we're delighted to be talking to Sid Mehta, founder and CIO at Bay Capital, about investing in India. India has long been the chosen one for emerging market investors given its favourable demographics, rapidly growing economy and geopolitical centrality as the world's largest democracy. Today we'll be looking to understand the size of this opportunity, what the Indian consumer looks like and whether we see the next Satya Nadella's stay in their country of birth to build world leading technology firms. Sid Mehta, a very warm welcome to Aravis Presents. So, Sid, let's start at the very top and let's try and frame the opportunity we have in India in front of us. The Indian government's vision for 2047, they're very, very ambitious. Some of the numbers here are pretty mind-blowing, obviously aiming for the world's second largest economy, exports to grow 12x, uh, it's going to be the world's youngest and, and largest working population, trying to grow per capita income 10x as well, up to about $20,000, I believe. Um, you know, these are very large numbers, these are very ambitious. Do you think it's... Do you think they're realistic? Do you think they're possible? Absolutely. I think if you look at India's um, trans- economic transformation over the last seven decades, has been nothing short of remarkable. Um, you know, India's share of global wealth has uh, increased from 0.1% uh, of global wealth in 1947 to a little under 4% today. Um, you know, along in a, in a period where you've generally had you know expansion of wealth around the world. Um, I think India uh, today has is, is, is at a crossroads where the foundation um, you know, to, um, for the growth of the economy has been laid. Uh, it still feels uh, it's early days in India's growth, and the reality is India today, India today is the fifth largest economy. It's $3 trillion in size. Um, and I think given where the world is positioned, um, I think the promise of India has, has never, never been uh, brighter. Fantastic. And I was thinking through kind of... Have we seen a similar transformation take place in history before? Obviously, the the most obvious case to compare it to would be that of China, um, certainly over the last 30 years. Do you think that's a helpful or or unhelpful lens to kind of view what's happening in India right now? I think think, um, China's economic miracle uh, unfolded before us over the last three decades. Um, The United States is is no different. Um, And if you look at where the US was 150, 180 years ago to where it is today, I think we've seen economic prosperity uh, percolate and then the US economy become the largest economy in the world today. Uh, I think India is, India is not, not, not too dissimilar, uh, very similar um, sort of drivers of growth, you know, domestic consumption, uh, very young population, um, you know, really driving India's economic progress. So I do believe 
where India is headed, um, you know, India very clearly will be the second or the third largest economy uh, over the next two decades. And do you think that when the economy starts to maybe mature, you know, we know China's a, a bit more mature at, at this current stage, do you think that the composition of the economy is there is, is looks different to China's? You know, China we know is, you know, it's been cheaper labor, obviously the, the world's factory, it's been known as this manufacturing hub. Is, does, does a kind of mature Indian economy look different to that? In, India is um, uh, very different to China. Um, I think China um, has benefited from um, very good administration, um, you know, top down in terms of allocation of resources and national priorities. Um, India, being a democracy, has not necessarily ha has benefited, um, you know, from the same discipline that perhaps you know China has witnessed over the last 30, 40 years, um, you know, since the Cultural Revolution. I think um, as a result of that, I think India. Uh, economic progress in India has seemed a little bit more chaotic. Um, but in reality, since 1991, I think when India's economy started opening up again, um, we've seen, a, you know, a steady but 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 sure-footed um, uh, progress in terms of opening up the, of opening up of the economy. And, and the big drivers of, of, um, of growth in India um, are, are, you know, our domestic consumption, um, you know, India's um, you know, market, though not homogeneous like China, you know, India, India is a disparate country with multiple sort of cultural preferences and languages um, across the country. But um, in reality, I think we have, you know, 1.4 billion people in India whose aspiration um, to consume goods, services, um, uh, personal care, etc., is not too dissimilar from that of the West or, or of China. So I, we, we believe that the principal driver of growth in India will continue to be consumption. Got it. And and a point you mentioned there, obviously, the, the democratic piece, you're saying, you know, it's led to more chaotic growth, slightly more volatile, you might yeah. say. Do you think ultimately that makes it more sustainable um, as, as a growing economy, the fact that it is democratic? Absolutely. I think um, I, I think that that is a price um, we as Indians are willing are prepared to pay um, to accept, um, you know, for freedom of speech and freedom of um, um, of vote, etc., to be able to choose our own, own government. And I think India, over the last sort of seven odd decades, has proven that, that it's a vibrant democracy. Um, it's the largest, world's largest democracy. Um, and, um, you know, and I think the system is working. You know, you've had 90% of India's population um, that has, has been lifted out of poverty over the, over the last sort of seven decades. Uh, that's a phenomenal statistic in terms of, um, of, of what the country's managed to achieve. Uh, through uh, periods of poor and mediocre administrations uh, over, over the last seven and a half decades. Um, and, you know, I think finally under, under Narendra Modi, I think India's found uh, a good, strong administrator who's managed um, to provide good governance and stability uh, with an absolute minded, which has continued to drive the change. And, and as a result of that, you're likely to see uh, big structural changes in, uh, in scale and size of India's economy. And you probably partly answered my, my next question um, with some of your talk about the government there, but, but to slightly challenge the narrative of, of this kind of exponential growth and rise we're seeing in India at the moment, you know, the, the population dividend of, you know, having a billion plus people has been in existence since we, about, I think, around 2000, it hit a billion people. Um, but, you know, 20 years later, just overtaking the, the UK in GDP terms. Why is now, why do you feel now is different the next 10 years going forward? You know, uh, are we shifting from S-curve to J-curve? If so, why is that happening? I, I think a variety of reasons. Um, well, I think India's 
population was seen um, as India's Achilles heels not so long ago, saying how is India going to feed and clothe uh, and educate you know a billion plus people? Uh, I think in in a world which is aging, uh, it is it is now dawning that that India's demographic dividend uh, is not just a dividend for for India but for the world, where the world needs um, you know in, in significant increments to the global workforce. Um, I think India's standing um, overall in the world in terms of because of its literacy level going up and India's relevance to the world in terms of geopolitics um, has changed um, significantly over the last sort of two decades. Um, I, and I do believe that, that I think the foundation of India's modern economy uh, were being laid in, in, in the 1990s. And I think India, as India was embracing change and, and um, you know, the Indian consumer found its voice and um, income levels started going up in India, uh, it's a very large mass of humanity. Uh, that had that needed to be uplifted out of poverty and 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 you know moved into into the middle class, um, and as a result of that, while it's taken India three decades uh, to get to two thousand dollars per capita um, uh, in terms of income levels, uh, we do believe the journey from here on, you know, to ten thousand dollars and and beyond is going to be a lot sooner. So so I do believe the twenty thousand dollar the target that um, has has you know has been discussed in in twenty forty seven is is very achievable. Very interesting. When we think of kind of explosive growth in any country's GDP, uh, it feels like there are always kind of familiar key drivers behind that. One we've kind of touched on already is, is the consumer obviously playing, like you guys have said, a, a pivotal role for, for Bay in, in that transformation. Second is infrastructure and the third is government. Um, do you want to touch on quickly infrastructure and government, how those two factors are, are really shaping the growth that we're seeing right now and, and potentially to come? Sure. I, th I think um, you know, India has always been a grassroots economy. And um, you know, despite um, you know various economic cycles over the last um, seventy odd years, uh, domestic consumption has continued to drive uh, India's uh, economy. Uh, I think over the last you know more pronounced since nineteen ninety nine, uh, government has realized that that a huge bottleneck to India's growth is likely to be supply side constraints, uh, because uh, the platform for infrastructure simply didn't exist in India, and that were because of anomalies um, you know and structural deficiencies um, that India offered, and a lot of those are, have been addressed and are being addressed. Uh, one, you know, government has had significant tax reform o over the last sort of seven, eight years, you know, uh, the rollout of the GST, the uniform uh, tax code across the country has, has enhanced government revenues and has allowed the government to spend, uh, you know, substantially more, and, and government has an ambitious program to spend over $2 trillion in um, infrastructure creation, um, you know, from roads, ports, airports. Um, even to, to social infrastructure projects. Um, and as such, that, that again acts as, as a huge stimulus uh, to the overall economy, both in terms of employment sort of uh, generation, as well as, um, you know, capex within, within um, the economy. And that creates, um, you know, that at least unleashes, um, you know, some of the potential of India by, um, by relieving some of the supply side constraints that India has historically had. Uh, in terms of government, um, you know, I think um, I, I think the government in India overall has been a great enabler for enterprise and, and, and as a result of that, um, uh, especially the, the Narendra Modi government has pushed through significant structural changes um, over the last uh, seven or eight years. Um, you know, uh, the tax code that we discussed, creating the backbone of the digital economy in India, um, you know, the financialization of savings, you know, in, because in 2016 the government had demonetization which effectively um, cancelled out 80% of the currency in circulation. And that forced a big part of rural India 
which um, you know transacted in the unorganized sector through cash and um, gold and other um, sort of instruments, you know, uh, forced that liquidity to into the banking system. You know, some two hundred million banking um, new bank accounts were opened in a period of two years, um, and all of that has has created uh, a very vibrant uh, domestic economy. So, so I do believe, you know, in addition to consumption, which has been the principal driver of uh, India's growth, I think government intervention in terms of policy and um, and uh, infrastructure spend is now uh, propelling India uh, into a new trajectory of growth. And and there was a I, I read a fantastic article on the FT. I think it was last week. Um, kind of one of their long reads, and it was talking about the Indian tech stack, yep. um, how this has kind of transformed people's lives. You know, around things like identity. Uh, just driver's licenses, basic documentation, as well as payments and other things you mentioned about the governance. How is that, you, you mentioned there obviously that, you know, urbanization as being another key theme. How, how is that tech stack helping drive that kind of change? Well, it's been transformational. Um, if you look at historically, um, um, urban India has had, had access um, to, um, you know, the internet effectively. Hmm. Um, um, what what has happened over the last seven, eight years, the government has made um, the national database a mandatory requirement for all citizens of the country. And effectively, you needed um, to have a, a UID number to, you know, to continue to um, use your daily um, needs, I, I, you know, uh, operate your bank account, have, continue to have a valid mobile phone, activated mobile phone uh, service, and so on and so forth. And if you didn't have that, you would effectively get blocked out of all you know, essential services. And that forced mapping out, you know, every single citizen in the country. Mm -hmm. um, that was the first step to really bringing the entire country together under one common platform. Um, when the government opened that up, um, you know, to corporate India, that that reduced uh, the, the the KYC costs uh, of onboarding customers. So you could effectively use a UID number um, and and use a fingerprint or an iris scan uh, to be able to identify a customer. Uh, and and that has been transformational in in. In rural India, where literacy rates historically have been have been poor, um, you know, so that has brought a big part of the population, especially the rural population, into the fold. And as connectivity has improved with um, the advent of internet, um, you know, in no thanks to Mr. Ambani's geo network, um, what you've really seen um, is uh, you know rural India participating in the digital economy in a very big way. Uh, the government announced you know through financialization opening of new bank accounts. In addition to that. Uh, while India is not a welfare state, a big part of uh, your daily needs are subsidized by the government. And a lot of these subsidi subsidies were, you know, had, had significant transmission losses historically. And what the current government did, which actually played to, in, to um, the favor of average Indians, is decided to transfer all those subsidies directly into, into bank accounts, individual bank accounts. And what that has meant is, you know, money in, in the hands of people directly. And as a result of that, you know, they were able, they had better spending power. Uh, so all of these changes has, has been truly transfer transformational in terms of how um, you know India operates, and, and you know it is our estimate the digital economy, which today is about a hundred billion dollars in size, is likely to grow to a trillion dollars in size uh, over the next seven to eight years. Fascinating, and, and I saw also at the end they were mentioning that this is something uh, this kind of tech stack is being rolled out more widely as well. I think they've been cooperating with other governments. I think it was the Philippines or, or, or another country that's been uh, trying to replicate that. Um, so let's go now to, let's talk about the kind of the equity markets. Let's look at a company level. India's got a phenomenal record of producing unicorns, I think almost unrivaled globally. Um, what's been the main driver of this and, and what does the Indian company of the future look like? Good, good question. I think, I think the big driver for, um, 
for for um, corporate India in terms of value in terms of corporate India has been the entrepreneurial talent um, that um, that India has, and um, you know um, clearly if you look at if you look around today, um, the number of Indian CEOs of of you know Fortune 100 businesses in the U.S. Uh, kind of speaks uh, you know to the testament of India's um, managerial talent, um, and I think as the opportunity set in India has evolved. Um, you know, I think uh, people have been, the proclivity uh, of people to travel has reduced as a result of that when the opportunity is closer to home. And as, you know, and, and you know, a variety of things happen as the red tape around the startup ecosystem, um, you know, got reduced over the last sort of, you know, eight to 10 years. Uh, all of a sudden you had, uh, you know, the onset of the digital economy. Uh, you had a little bit of, of the Alibaba effect, i.e. a lot more capital started flowing into, into the startup ecosystem seven, eight years ago. And while when, you know, and all of that, you know, when, when there was capital, which was a huge barrier to entry for new enterprise in India historically, was, was more freely available. Um, you know, there were a lot of young entrepreneurs and managers who had ideas, who had learned, you know, from the experiences in the West, um, you know, decided to put that, you know, put that, put that to use in, in India's nascent economy. And, and a confluence of that really has, has meant that a lot more talent has got retained uh, in India within the startup ecosystem. And, um, you know, and, and again, when, when Indian entrepreneurs have found a way to provide an everyday need or everyday service to the Indian consumer um, in, a, in a way that delights the consumer and provides value, um, you know, they found a niche and they're able to scale because that's testament to India's uh, scale and size. You've again, partly, you're one step ahead of me oh, yeah, today, sorry. so you partly sorry, answered, sorry, <laughs> answered sorry. one of my next questions, sorry. perhaps, but I think there's still some, some stuff we can talk about here, which is about brain drain. I think it's a bit of an elephant in the room when we talk about India building kind of domestic champions, especially in the, in the tech sector. So, you know, Fortune 100 companies, like you mentioned, I think I ran through the CEOs of, of Starbucks, IBM, Google, Microsoft, Adobe, that's just to name a few, uh, are, are run by, you know, Indian either first generation, second generation um, leaders in, in the last few years. Does the next Satya Nadella, do, do you think he stays and, and builds something in India, um, given the kind of incentives that may be shifting? Absolutely, I think the opportunity is not lost upon um, upon the youth of India. Um, I think historically the reasons why um, you know Indians migrated out of the country they simply were not enough well-paid jobs in the country. Uh, people saw a brighter future in terms of economic prosperity, buying into the American dream, and so on and so forth. Um, the reality is, um, you know, I think uh, it is the Indian dream uh, today has manifested itself. Uh, where people realize that India is the land of opportunity, um, you know, with 1.4 billion people, a very large domestic market. I think over the last 30 odd years, um, you know, India uh, has created something like 160 billionaires. Um, I think the statistic is 90% of these billionaires are first generation uh, entrepreneurs. And, and that, I think, is, is a huge um, uh, motivation for, um, you know, the em emerging youth when they, when they see that saying that India truly is a meritocracy. I think India's opened up and moved on from the License Raj, where uh, you know, very few had the opportunity to, to start industry and start, start businesses. Um, that has changed meaningfully. I think, I think the two big entry barriers in India that existed historically, which was capital, and, um, and two uh, was distribution. Both of those have got disintermediated in a meaningful, meaningful way uh, because of the startup ecosystem and, and the capital being available and um, the onset of digital adoption. So what that has meant is new entrepreneurial talent can come in with a bright idea and there is capital available to them, um, you know, to, to put that idea to work. 
and 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 again we believe um, as as um, there's a greater sense of belief uh, within India uh, that India deserves uh, a seat at the table uh, in terms of being an economic power. Uh, you know, in this century, um, I think Indians per se do believe that this is India's uh, decade, if not century. And I also wanted to touch on valuations. I think you know the market's obviously done very well over the last decade, even further back. It's been one of the top performing um, geographies. And, and valuations at the moment still relatively elevated versus historically, but I think India has always been quite expensive um, on right. that basis. Do you think some of the optimism we talked about today is, is kind of already baked into prices, or do you think very much that the underlying earnings are justifying justifying some of the, the numbers we're seeing? I, I think India, at least in my sort of 21 years of investing, uh, India has never been cheap um, you know, to, to global markets. India has always tended to optically look expensive, and through that, journey of looking expensive India still you know managed to deliver uh, you know some of the best returns out of any any significant large economy on a consistent basis um, I think the promise of the opportunity of India you know again when you take a step back and and, and you know look at the opportunity set over the next hundred years um, it is very hard to argue against uh, why India will not be the second largest or the largest economy in the world um, both in terms of demographics in terms of um, you know it being a democracy, um, and, and, you know, the youthfulness of, of India's, in, India's uh, uh, population and um, the scale and size of the economy and the opportunity set is very visible. When you put that um, 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 in context with what's happening rest of, in, in the rest of the world, I think India definitely demands a premium, um, you know, to the rest of the world in, in, in that sense. And I think a lot of, lot of people that I've known over the years that have waited for an opportune moment to try and buy the market or try and time the market mm -hmm. to, to find to buy India when it when it becomes cheap, um, are still trying to wait for that opportunity, and uh, you know in, and in that time period have, have missed out the entire journey from a three hundred billion dollar economy to a three trillion dollar economy, and uh, dare I say you know I think India, um, at least in my lifetime in our lifetime, uh, will easily be a you know twenty trillion dollar economy. And going back to some higher level discussion there is a centrality to india's geographic position that feels like quite an appropriate metaphor for its geopolitical quandary it's in right now yeah. which is does it pivot to the west or does it pivot to the east or can it sit in the middle as it is now and try and work together with both sides H how do you see that unfolding i think um you know um in india india's um non-aligned status goes back to the time of Nehru, um, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, during the Cold War, where India sort of came out and said, look, India was a champion of the non-aligned movement, saying we are the independent bloc. We're too poor to make a choice in that sense. Um, I think India today is, is definitely a lot more confident than what it was in, in the 1950s. Um, and the foreign policy uh, of India is issue-based, you know, as, as has been stated, rather than ideology-based. Um, and what India has basically said, that, look, we are a sovereign country. Um, we, are, we are an emerging country. We, we have uh, a very significant domestic population that we need to look after. Um, and as such, we cannot, um, you know, uh, base our existence, um, you know, simply on the base of ideo basis of ideology. And as such, um, India remains an independent country. Um, you know, India today um, enjoys uh, the position and distinction of being able to trade with Iran and Russia uh, because, you know, uh, in order to... Um, uh, provide for its energy security, 
but at the same time, you know, it sits around the U.S. as, as a long-term ally uh, with whom it's ideologically aligned. Uh, and that's a very unique position. Uh, I think India, uh, 40 years ago, probably wouldn't have had that confidence. Um, so, so clearly, I think India has finally found its voice and its position. And I think that plays to India's strength. Um, clearly, uh, India uh, has, and again, I think there is a sense of belief that India can be a bridge between East and West, um, between uh, the old world and the new world. Um, you know, China is one of the largest trading partners of India. Um, you know, I think while the world has, has a lot um, of concern around, around China's expansionist uh, foreign policy um, and, um, you know, and, and the new uh, axis um, that China has now formed with Russia, um, I think India stands outside of, of that, but at the same time uh, can engage in a dialogue uh, with all sides. And, and I think that's a privileged position to be in. Absolutely. And, and I think kind of vaguely linked to this again is the idea of, I wanted to bring up the idea of the BRICS, which yeah. obviously was famously coined by yeah. Jim O'Neill back yeah. in, the, in the early noughties. Yeah. Um, you know, I think certainly in our view, it's, it's quite a, it was maybe a, a, a label of exclusion rather yeah. than inclusion. Um, countries didn't quite fit into into developed economies and were certainly coming up the chain. Um, on that, do you think that, that we see a splintering of that group in terms of how they're classified? Do you think India is going to shift in terms of how it's indexed, in terms of how it's viewed? You know, will, will we get separate India buckets, separate China buckets outside of the traditional emerging market label? I, I think that that's a, that's a compulsion uh, that allocators will have to contend with. Um, I, I, you know, I, I subscribe to the philosophy that, um, uh, that the way uh, allocations have worked uh, have been um, by, by looking in, in, in the rearview mirror, uh, by economic history of, of, of yesteryears. Um, you know, it was not so long ago that India accounted for roughly 30% of the world's GDP. Um, you know, some 250 years ago, uh, 275 years ago, that was the case. Um, now, you know, if 25% of all uh, incremental global growth is going to come from India, uh, and it represents uh, a fifth of the world's population, uh, how much of your uh, portfolio should be invested in India? Um, you know, that's a question, you know, better answered by an allocator. But I do believe, you know, in, as India's weight in uh, uh, MSCI-EM has increased substantially, as has China's, um, I think investors will have no choice but to allocate a greater part of their portfolio in India where, you know, there is real growth, and it is likely to account for a big part of, of uh, you know, future uh, world growth. Another thing, obviously mentioned a lot by allocators recently, is ESG. Yep. Um, I think it's 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 almost unavoidable at this stage. I wanted to ask a kind of twofold question around this. Firstly, um, what are your views on on an ESG criteria for an emerging market? I think it's one of the more or one of the certainly the unanswered questions right. that goes around is is should we be treating somewhere like India that's earlier in its growth stage? the same as we should a fully developed and mature economy like let's say the UK? Should we be holding to the same strict standards? And then secondly, what kind of opportunities are going to be created, do you think, by more ESG awareness in India for the, for the long-term investor? I, 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 think, um, I, I think, yes, definitely. I think there's a lot to, to, to learn from um, uh, the economic development of the West. Uh, I think there have been a lot of mistakes that have been made uh, in, um, in West economic progress, scientific research has shown um, uh, and scientific progress uh, has shown a lot of the mistakes that have been made can be avoided. Uh, there's technology that exists today which was not the case 100 years ago. Um, so clearly I think, um, and you know, India 
um, you know, in, India is um, um, one of the champions uh, of the Paris Accord um, as such. And, and um, you know, India's own uh, commitment, um, you know, to, to, uh, to be a carbon neutral country, uh, you know, I think over the next, I think, 30 or 40 years. Um, which, which I think is a big, big, it's, you know, it's a big commitment. I don't know if India will be able to measure up and fulfill uh, that promise. But nevertheless, I think there is a clear, um, uh, at least, desire, um, you know, to, to achieve, um, um, uh, yeah, achieve that, that, that progress. In terms of ESG um, uh, levels, I think our own view is uh, well-run businesses end up being good corporate citizens, uh, end up developing uh, and executing on uh, you know some best practices around the world, and a lot of the portfolio companies that that you know we tend to, a lot of companies that we like to own or companies in our portfolio, uh, generally you know would stack up extremely well against uh, any ESG measure measure as such. Uh, so clearly, we do believe um, you know even today there is greater awareness uh, of of uh, a requirement uh, for being a, a better social uh, you know corporate citizen in India, and as such you you, you do see. A lot of initiatives being taken by, by Indian companies, uh, which, which I think is great. Fantastic. Sid, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me.